chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, and we will be looking at verse number 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please bow with me in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you for grace. We thank you for peace. We thank you for bringing us here together to to hear your word this morning and to worship you. Father, I ask that you would lead me and guide me and direct me as I present your word. And may your spirit visit us to, to melt down the hearts of those who don't know you, that they would surrender to you in faith and repentance. And that those of us who, who do know you would, would once again be awestruck by your grace and your mercy towards us. That it would not be just a common thing. Help us to see the, the beauty and this truth this morning. The glory in this text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I was debating whether or not I would spend an entire sermon on grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But as I was reading Lloyd-Jones, he convinced me to do so. One of the, the things that I was thinking of myself is, this is a common greeting that, that Paul typically uses. Is there much in here? And Lloyd-Jones convicted me by saying we often treat this as a common greeting. Like a, like a pre-printed signature on a piece of paper, a letterhead. He says it all the time, grace and peace. But is this just a mere greeting? Or is there actually meat in those words? Why the emphasis on grace and peace? But for the Christian, two of the most precious words we could ever hear are grace and peace. And hearing these words should should move the Christian. It should stimulate us to gratitude as we remember that we have received grace and we have found peace in Christ. As I said before, many of us have had it so easy in our Christian lives because of where we live, where we grew up. But, but imagine the difficulty of being a believer in the New Testament, in a, in a city like Ephesus that, that is not yet Christianized. There, there's not much Christian influence. There, there's much difficulty there. 
And these believers would, would have this letter read to them. And they would hear those precious words, grace and peace. And what a sweet reminder this would be to them. That a man, even in prison, can write grace and peace to you. To people who are in distress. What a comfort to be reminded of this. To be reminded of the grace we have received in the past and the grace that we will continue to receive as God's people. And what joy and peace and hope we should receive today as we contemplate the past, the present, and the future grace and peace that is ours in Christ. So what is the, what is the, the big fuss about grace and peace. Is this really a big deal? I'm afraid that we use the word so often today that that we often allow it to lose the value that it should really have. To to hear the word grace is a magnificent thing, but we, we, we name our churches grace. We name our kids grace. I have a niece named grace, a wonderful thing. We write songs about grace. Christians are always talking about grace. But is it a big deal? Well, to truly understand the significance of grace and peace to the Christian, we must first understand the depths of our sin. And I'm afraid that if we, if we don't understand the depth of our sin, we do not appreciate grace. And we, dear friends, live in an age that denies man's sinfulness. Sadly, even in many churches, we don't, we don't want to talk about sin. We don't understand sin. But because we don't understand sin, we don't understand grace. Lloyd-Jones said, it is because man has an inadequate conception of sin that he has an inadequate conception of the grace of God. And listen to this. If you want to measure grace, you must first measure the depth of sin. To to the degree that you understand sin, that, that is to the degree that you will understand the magnificence of grace. But but notice that in our world, there's a great attempt to get rid of this notion of sin. How does the world do this? Well, maybe a person does something evil like taking a gun into a school and opening fire. And we say that has nothing to do with sin. This is evidence of mental illness. MacArthur said, these days, everything wrong with humanity is likely to be explained as an illness. What we used to call sin is more easily diagnosed as a whole array of disabilities. All kinds of immorality and evil conduct are now identified as symptoms of this or that psychological illness. Criminal behavior, various perverse passions, and every imaginable addiction have all been made excusable by the crusade to label them 
medical afflictions. According to Cleveland Clinic, kleptomania is a mental health condition where a person feels an uncontrollable urge to steal things. And they say that people who have this condition might try unsuccessfully to not act on the urge and may even feel remorse or guilt for stealing. That sounds like an unbeliever to me. An uncontrollable act, an uncontrollable desire to steal. A person who's who's a slave to their sin. They feel remorse afterwards. This is a sign of kleptomania. No, that's called a conscience. But but we've classified this as a so-called impulse disorder. And kleptomania is just one of many many so-called impulse disorders that, that are typically treated by psychotherapy or medication or both. Do you want to know if you have an impulse disorder? Let me read to you some of the signs and symptoms. Starting fires, sudden explosive anger or acts of violence, hair pulling, participating in risky sexual behaviors, stealing, compulsive lying, presence of STDs from engaging in risky sexual behavior, Physical injuries are scars from from engaging in physical fights or aggressive episodes. Unplanned pregnancies. Inability to control impulses. Unable to remain patient. Irritability. Feeling unable to control actions and agitation. These, we say, are signs and symptoms of a mental disorder that needs to be treated with psychotherapy or drugs. This is madness. Anger, violence, promiscuity, stealing, lying, unplanned pregnancies, no longer sin, but illness. So we have a a world full of people who say, I'm not a sinner, I'm sick. I don't need God. I need my medication. I need my therapist. The world has attempted, and very successfully, to remove the label of sin from society. But unfortunately, the church has done much of the same. Listen to MacArthur again. These days, when sinners, seek to help, when sinners seek help from churches and other Christian agencies, they are likely to be told that their problem is some emotional disorder or psychological syndrome. They might be encouraged to forgive themselves and told they ought to have more self-love and self-esteem, that they are not as likely to hear that they must repent and humbly seek God's forgiveness in Christ. And he notes that that is such an extraordinary change of direction for the church that even secular observers have noticed it. So you go to a Christian organization designed to help youth. Is the gospel present? Maybe slightly. But what is the emphasis? 
self-esteem, self-love. You're not a sinner. You've just had a rough background, a rough upbringing. And the church has brought into the lie, brought into the lie of society, refusing to call sin what it is because our society refuses to. So, so we say things like, I'm not a medical professional. I can't call this sin because I don't have a medical degree. I'm not a scientist. If scientists say that, that, that compulsive lying is a mental disorder, then I need to take my child to a psychologist because I'm not a doctor. Dear friends, God defines sin, not scientists. And by the way, we don't deny mental disorders, do we? No, of course not. But we don't take sinful behavior and label it as mental health issues. The church must take a stand and say that the reason why we see the vast problems that we see today is not because we have an epidemic of mental disorders, but because we have an epidemic of unrestrained sin. That is why we see what we see. We don't don't have school shootings because the gun laws are not strict enough on people with mental disorders. We have these things because of evil, because of sin. And that is the bottom line. So, so what does Scripture teach us about sin? Well, we know that God created mankind good and without sin. But Adam and Eve gave into temptation in the garden, thus sinning against God. And as a result of the fall of our first parents, we are born guilty sinners. And this is what is often called original sin. Paul says in Romans 5, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam was our representative as man. And he was a perfect representative chosen by God to to represent us. And so in his fall, we fell with him. I like the way the New England Primer puts it. In Adam's sin, in Adam's fall, we sin all. But but not only does mankind inherit the the guilt of Adam's sin by by sinning in Adam, but but Adam also passed down to us a corrupted nature. And as a result of this, as humans, we are are prone to sin. We, We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. There's a distinction. So Adam and Eve brought sin. Not soon later, they had sons. What did the first son do to the other? He killed him. Murder. I mean, he he hadn't even seen a a cowboy movie with shooting jet. He he didn't play these violent video games. There was something within his heart that hated to the point where he would take his own brother's life, something he had never seen done before. 
Such is human nature. And as the world went on and and, and the people multiplied, sin multiplied and increased more and more. And so it only takes until Genesis 6 until we read this. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, this is not long after creation. This is what that that corruption did. It created offspring where every intent of the heart was only evil continually. So God wiped out every human on the earth except for Noah and his family. The rest of mankind killed in the flood. But did this solve the problem? No. Right after the flood, God makes a promise. And in making this promise, he reveals something to us about man's nature. So in Genesis 8, he says, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. We are not born blank slates. We're born sinners. And that is why we sin. And, and, and all throughout Scripture, we see display after display after display of man's sin and rebellion against God. God delivers Israel from bondage in Egypt. And how do they thank Him? With idolatry. And this is man's condition. This is man's actions over and over and over again. Sinful and rebellious. So Paul writes in Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They, they use their tongues to deceive. The, the venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruined and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Behold the beautiful human nature. So Paul summarizes in verse 23 by saying, All have sinned. And far short of the glory of God. Dear friends, this describes all of mankind without exception. Each of us here today was born sinful. And we sinned from our youth as children, as teenagers disobeying and and disrespecting our parents, taking things that don't belong to us, hitting people when we don't get our way. And some of us still do that as adults. 
And all throughout our lives, we have sinned more times than we could possibly count, constantly blaspheming God's name and taking it in vain with the very breath that he gives us. Lusting after others. Putting worthless things before our eyes and our minds and some actually committing physical fornication. We have told countless lies to get our way. Perhaps to get out of trouble or perhaps to get others into trouble. And we have coveted what God has given to others. Coveting other people's spouses and their jobs, their cars and their houses, their positions. And we have hated others in a way that Christ says is murder. We have been lazy in our work. Doing eye service. Only working when the boss is around effectually stealing from the company. And even though God has given us a conscience, we have told our conscience to be quiet and ignored it, going on willingly in our sins. And we're so rebellious against God that we, that we try to hide our sins from others while we sin openly before God who sees everything. Because we care what others think more than what God thinks. We have slandered others. Destroying the names and reputations of people and organizations and businesses and many other things. We have been backbiters. Gossipers. Sinning over and over again with our tongues. We have taken all that God has given us to serve him with and to worship him with. And we have used it to sin. Sinning with our feet. Sinning with our hands. Sinning with our eyes. Sinning with our minds. Sinning with our time. Sinning with the technology that God has blessed us with. Everything that God has given us for good, we have used as instruments of sin. And there are consequences for this. This does not go unnoticed by God. So as a result of this sin against God, we have no peace. We don't have peace with God. We don't have peace with ourselves. We don't have peace with others. So first, we we don't have peace with God. In essence, because of our sins, we are at war with God. The, the, The sinner hates God. Paul tells us that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. And and it does not submit to God's law. So in our sins, we, we, we cannot please God. We are actually hostile to God and we refuse to submit to his law. And so we are enemies of God. James 4, do you not know that that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. God's enemy. 
The person living in sin is God's enemy. He is at war with God. There is tension between God and the sinner. As Paul tells us that the sinner is hostile towards God, and the psalmist tells us that God is angry with the wicked every day. There is tension. There is no peace there. There is war. And so God, we don't like the concept. So we try to get rid of God. So we hold on to philosophies like, like atheism and evolution to try to rid our conscience of God's law because we know that we are at war with him. But because of this, man is judged. Paul says to the Colossians, because of these things, because of our sins, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Wrath is built up against the sinner because of these sins. Edwards put it this way, the wrath of God is like Great waters that are damned for the present, they increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. Tis true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed yet. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt is in the meantime constantly increasing and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are are continually rising and waxing more and more mighty. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is. Yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell. It would be nothing to withstand or endure it. We take advantage of God. And we say, God has not killed me in my sins yet, so I doubt he will. But as Edward says, it's like a dam where, where the, the dam of God's mercy is, is, is staying there. But the, but, the, but the wrath is building up and it's building up higher and higher and higher until one day God will open the floodgate. But dear friends, why such severe judgment for sin? Because we have committed cosmic treason, sinning against a holy God. And the Bible tells us that that the wages of sin is death. This is what our sins have earned. Not only physical death, but eternal damnation. Physical death is not the end. Jesus said, fear him who, after he has killed the body, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Don't fear the man that can kill your body. Fear the one who can kill your body and cast into hell. 
which the Bible describes as a lake of fire. Where Jesus said the fire is not quenched. This place where Jesus said there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is judgment for sin. This is what you and I deserve the moment we are born. And this is the reward, the wages that you and I have worked for our entire lives. This is justice. We often say that's not fair. If God was, was fair with us, this is what we would receive. This is what we are owed. So because of his sins, not only does the unbeliever not have peace with God, and not only does he have the the wrath of God breathing down his neck because he does not have peace with him, but he also has no peace within. He's at war even with himself. Scripture tells us that we know there is a God, and we try to suppress the truth, but we know. We know that God is righteous. We know that His law condemns us in our sins. And so we don't have peace. But dear friends, we can never have peace within until we make peace with God. We can't be at war with God and and have internal peace. And some of you today are are desperate for peace of mind. You are tired of, of internal conflicts. Strife in your mind. No peace. You, you are exhausted wondering how can you go on with no peace of mind. But it gets even worse. Because what else does our sin do? Not only does it put us at war with God and at war with ourselves, but it, put us, it puts us at war with others. And so the unbeliever in his sins cannot maintain peace with other people. He has no peace with others. Conflict, strife, always. This is why we have fights This is why we have arguments. This is why we have violence. This is why people are killing each other in the streets and the cities. No peace with others. Lloyd-Jones said, man was never meant to be a god, but he is forever trying to deify himself. Unfortunately for him, everyone else wants to be a god as well. And so we have war between the gods. Because of our sin, we we all become self-centered, egocentric, turning in upon this self we put on a pedestal and, and which we think is so wonderful and superior to all others, but everyone else is doing the same. And so there is war among the gods. We we claim that we are right and everyone else is wrong. Inevitably the result is confusion and discord and unhappiness between man and man. even conflict in the church, oftentimes resulting from sin. Men wanting to be God to themselves, 
And so clashing with the other men who want to be gods. Difference, how many of you here today cannot obtain peace with others? And you are wondering, what's wrong with the world? How come I can't get along with anybody? What's wrong with everyone else? I mean, literally, everyone I work with, everyone in my family, everyone in my church is always wrong. What's the matter? Everyone else is stupid and I am wise. No peace with others. Because of our sins, we can't have peace with God. We cannot have peace within and we cannot have peace with others. And I wonder if there's anyone here today lacking this peace. Anyone here today experiencing this lack of peace with God and lack of peace with yourself and, and this lack of peace with others? You understand that, that, that you are in conflict all of the time. You have no peace and you, and you are desperate for it. Desperate for peace of mind. Desperate to have peace with others, but you feel hopeless. So perhaps you have tried alcohol. Perhaps you have tried drugs. Perhaps you've tried prescription medication. Looking for a miracle pill to give you the peace you so desperately desire. You want the strife to end, but it won't let up. It's perpetual. You can't stop it no matter what you do. No peace comes. No peace with others. No internal peace. So maybe you have even contemplated taking your life. Perhaps I will find peace in the grave. And to add to your lack of peace, you feel the wrath of God, of a just and powerful God, breathing down your neck because you know you are at war with Him. You see the sinfulness of your sins. You know that that you are in a sinful state. You know that you don't have peace with God and that death can come upon you at any moment. You are not ready to die because you are beginning to fear him who after he has killed the body can cast the soul into hell. Dear friends, if this describes you, understand that in your sinful state, you will always be miserable. Miserable in life. And even more miserable in death. What a misery. What a miserable condition our sins have brought upon us. What what terrible wages sin pays. But dear friends, did God leave us in this miserable condition 
without hope. Is there hope for me? Is there hope for one who who is at war with God? Is there hope for, for the one who is an enemy of God according to the scriptures? Listen to the apostle. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Though we hated God, though we were hostile towards him, though we loved the world and thus were enemies of God, while we were yet enemies, God sent his son to die and live for us. That the blood of Christ was shed for the remission of our sins so that those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be forgiven. And have everlasting life. Though we hated God and and sinned against Him, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Though we hated Christ, though we hated God, the Apostle tells us by this we know love that he, referring to Christ, laid down his life for us. Christ took upon himself our sins and was punished in our place so that his righteousness could be imputed to us. But dear friends, what is this? What is this we have received when when we were enemies? We, we, We did not get punished according to our sins. Why? One word. Grace. Grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Receiving good that we did not deserve. Receiving good that we did not earn. Our wages for our sins was death, but yet God gave us what we did not deserve. That, dear friends, is grace. Lloyd-Jones said, grace is that which tells man that in spite of all that is so true of him, God looks upon him with favor. It is utterly unmerited. It is entirely undeserved. But this is the message of grace be unto you. It is an unmerited and undeserved action by God, a condescending love. When man in sin deserved nothing but to be blotted out of existence, God looked on him in grace and mercy and dealt with him accordingly. This makes a man right. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that that saved a wretch like me. Marvelous grace of of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. 
Sin and despair, like, like the sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss. But grace, that is greater. Yes, grace, untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace that is greater than all of our sins. Marvelous grace. Infinite grace. Grace. What a magnificent word. What a wonderful thing it is to be reminded of this marvelous grace and this infinite grace. What a wonderful thing for for the unbeliever to come in and and hear about grace and say, what is this grace? Let me tell you about this wonderful, marvelous, infinite grace of our loving Lord. These words of Paul, grace and peace to you, are not empty and meaningless words. Or as Lloyd-Jones put it, the one word grace at the beginning of the epistle introduces the entire gospel. And dear friends, once we have received this grace of God, something wonderful happens. We actually obtain peace. Romans 5, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is making peace with God. Dear friend, do you feel God's wrath breathing down your neck as your enemy? Then be ye reconciled to Him. Make peace with Him through faith and repentance. Receive His grace through faith. And guess what? He's no longer your enemy, but your father. He takes his enemy who is under his wrath and adopts him into his family. And he is their heavenly father who provides all the grace and the mercy he needs. He offers this to all of us today. If we would turn from our sins and trust in Jesus for salvation, what a weight to throw off of your shoulders. Are you at war with God? Is God your enemy? Make peace with Him today. And after we have peace with God, we can actually experience internal peace. Peace of mind. As the Apostle writes to the Philippians, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and mind through Christ Jesus. As believers, we can have a peace that is from God. An internal peace. From God that surpasses all understanding. We, we, we don't have to, to, like the world, try to find some out. We don't have to go and get high and get drunk to try to ease our conscience. We don't have to contemplate suicide to, to escape the, the internal turmoil. We, we can actually have peace within, a peace that comes from God, a peace that doesn't even make sense to the world. It surpasses all understanding. 
the peace that is immovable, a peace that is unshakable, a peace that does not depend upon our circumstances and how people treat me, but a peace that Paul can write about from a prison cell going to die in a peace that he can write to those being persecuted. You can have this peace because it does not depend upon your circumstance. Dear friends, do you desire that peace? Then make peace with God. And once we know that type of peace, we can begin to have peace with others. Proverbs 16 tells us, when a man's ways please the Lord, he even makes his enemies to be at peace with him. We can have peace even with our enemies. Great peace. But no grace, no peace. This is a peace that that comes only from receiving the grace of God through faith. Consider one more point with me. Consider the divine source of this peace. Paul says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The very source of our grace and peace is divine. What a magnificent truth. God doesn't give us grace and peace by removing us from our situations in life, by removing us from our tough jobs, by removing us from from family members that are hard to get along with. No, He changes us internally so that no matter what situation we are in, we have grace and peace. Peace, its source is divine. So once again, Paul can write to Christians in a non-Christian environment where there is persecution and darkness all around, even fear of death, and he can wish them grace and peace. Because God can provide it in the most difficult of circumstances. In a hostile place like Ephesus where, where people want the gospel to leave. They want to crush it. And Paul says, grace and peace to you. God will supply you grace. He will supply you peace. And dear friends, even in the darkness of our day, what a joyful, glorious reminder we have of of the glorious grace and, and peace of God. Marvelous grace, infinite grace. An unshakable peace. Untouchable peace from God Himself, God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Oh, gracious Father. What a wonderful word. This word grace. 
Father, often when we use a word so many times, it becomes common. And we say that we have received grace and it stimulates nothing in us. Oh Lord, when we read these words in this text, when we read about grace, may it just dissolve our heart in thankfulness as Watts put it, and melt our eyes in tears. Marvelous grace, infinite grace, we have received from you. What a glorious truth, Father, that, that though we have spent our lives sinning, earning the, the wages of sin, which is death, you, you have not given us what we deserve, but was gracious to us. Father, if there be anyone here today who, who, who does not know this marvelous grace, oh, help them to come to know it. Turn them to you. Melt their heart of stone, Father, and overwhelm them with your grace and your mercy that they too could have peace with you and peace within and peace with others. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.